We've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism this year, and we're at the start of the Apostles' Creed, which is broken down into uh, God the Father, uh, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and then a number of other things that come from that. And so we've been looking at God the Father, and uh, we've actually been looking at some of that in the morning as well, because we're looking through the book of Genesis. And so we talked about God as our Creator God. We talked about God as being... Uh, almighty and, and uh, everywhere present with us and, and self-sustaining, that, that God is, is the one who sustains himself and who sustains us. Uh, he needs nothing or no one else uh, to, to do anything for him. And so he's the provider of all of our needs. And uh, we also looked last week at the fact that uh, not only is he has this sovereignty and is able to do all these things, but he, he wants to do them because he is our loving Father. And so there's a lot of things we can say about God the Father. We're going to look at one more as the Catechism goes on in Lord's Day 10 to talk about God as provider. And so there are two questions and answers there, and I would like to have us read those responsively. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand." How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move or be moved. And then I'd invite you to turn with me to the end of Genesis, actually chapter 45 first, and then we will look at chapter fifth, parts of chapter 50 as well, as we look at one particular story uh, that, just, that just illustrates in such a phenomenal way God's providence and his providential care in our lives. It's the story of Joseph. And, you, and we're going to start with, with uh, chapter 45, uh, just a few verses there, and then we'll go to chapter 50. But we're going to read that a little later on in the sermon. So once you have that, just keep that in hand. And uh, just a reminder of Joseph and his life. Back in, we're, back in Genesis 37, we're introduced to, to Joseph as one of the 12 sons of Jacob. A son that turns out to be one of his favorites. And that gets Joseph in a little bit of trouble, plus the fact that he doesn't keep his mouth shut, maybe when he should. And uh, make a long story short, Joseph irritates his brothers enough that they finally are fed up and they sell him to slave traders who take him down to Egypt. And there in Egypt he finds himself uh, in, in slavery and eventually in a, in a prison, but uh, through the way that God works in his life, he finally becomes second in command in all of Egypt 
and ends up saving uh, that part of the world at, at the very least, including the people of Israel, from a severe famine. And, uh, and we come to the end of Joseph's life, and that's the passages we're going to look at, and we see Joseph has reflected a little bit on God's role in it all. And so that's what we're going to focus on as we look at those passages. Before we do that, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you again that you're a God who provides, that you're a God who, who works out our paths even when we're not sure where they're taking us. We pray that we might learn that from the story of Joseph as well as the testimony of the stories in our lives, that you are a God who provides. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1945, Cliff Barrows and his fiancée had scraped together enough funds for a simple wedding and two train tickets to a city with a resort hotel. On arrival, however, they found the hotel shut down. Stranded in an unfamiliar city with little money, they thumbed a ride. A sympathetic driver took them to a local grocery store owned by a woman he knew. The newlyweds spent their first night in a room above the store. The next day, when the lady overheard Cliff playing Christian songs on his trombone, she arranged for them to spend the rest of their honeymoon at a friend's house. Several days later, the host invited them to attend a youth rally where a young evangelist was speaking. The song leader was sick that night, and Cliff was asked to take charge of the music for the service. The young evangelist was, of course, Billy Graham, and the two were partners for crusades ever since. When things don't go the way you plan, you find out God may have other plans of his own for you. And this evening, we look at a story of a biblical character who discovered the same thing. Now, it's easy to recognize the presence of God when things are going well, when the sun's shining, when you have plenty of money in the bank, when you're healthy. But what about the cloudy days, when the doctor brings bad news, or relationships seem to be coming apart? Where is God when pain and sorrow come? From Joseph, we learn that God is still with us, even in times of greatest darkness. And sometimes we find that God is with us in those times most of all. Now some people present Joseph as a perfect son, treated badly by his brothers. But he doesn't always help his cause. Genesis 37 suggests that he might be a spoiled brat with three strikes against him. We read in Genesis 37, verse 2, Joseph, a, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, remember, Joseph is the son of Rachel, who is Jacob's favorite wife. These other sons were, these other brothers come from other wives. And what Joseph does, you know, our kids have a word for it. It's called tattletale. In fact, the Hebrew word for report gives us kind of a negative sense that the re report might actually even be untrue. 
So Joseph is telling a bad, possibly untrue story about them. Strike one. Then there's the robe. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Once again in Genesis, as we'll see in the morning service as we go through the book, favoritism rears its head. Joseph, the son of Jacob's old age, is given a special robe. We don't know what it was like, but we can be assured Jacob got it from an expensive men's clothing store, hand-tailored. The rest of them got their clothes off the rack at Kmart. But what made the coat explosive was more than the material or the cost. In fact, we know of ancient Near Eastern ceremonies involving robes like this one that would mark the recipient as the father's primary heir. Now, Joseph's the 11th son, and yet he takes the rights of the firstborn and gets the family farm. A big strike, too. And then there were the dreams. Now, dreams were generally considered prophetic, though at this point the author doesn't, of Genesis doesn't say that, but you'd think Joseph might at least have the common sense to keep them to himself. His brothers already have problems with this fancy robe-wearing, inheritance-stealing younger brother. So we see, as we read in Genesis 37, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So you'd think he might, might just keep things close to the vest, but not Joseph. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. To which they respond, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. You notice a word that keeps popping up? Hate. Hate. His brothers hated him. Joseph has another dream, doesn't keep that one to himself either. And finally, they hate him so much, they end up secretly selling him as a slave to traders going to Egypt and tell their father that his favorite son is dead. Strike three. So Jacob thinks Joseph is dead, but in reality, Joseph is on his way to character school in Egypt. Joseph's dreams talk about him being exalted, but instead he becomes a slave. He's gone from the top in his dreams to the bottom. And yet even in slavery, we read in chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. So he became a slave and actually ran the household of a wealthy leader by the name of Potiphar. And all is good until Mrs. Potiphar makes advances at Joseph, and he rejects her. And in retaliation, she lies, and Joseph ends up in prison. All he's done is seek to honor God, be faithful to him. And yet we read, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. 
And there, Joseph, so long preoccupied with himself and with his own dreams, begins to notice and care for others, other prisoners, even eventually predicting the outcomes of a couple of their dreams. And that eventually brings him to the attention of Mr. Pharaoh. God uses Joseph, raises him up again through dreams to save the whole population of Israel or of Egypt and other nations, including Israel, from starvation during a famine. He becomes the second highest ruler in Egypt and eventually is reconciled with his brothers who, consistent with his dreams, bow down to him. What did Joseph learn from all of this? Well, let's pick up the story in Genesis 45. Now, the brothers have come. Joseph has given them grain. They didn't recognize him. Every time he gave them the grain, he also had them put the money back in the sack. And eventually, they, he threw a silver cup, his own personal cup, in Benjamin's sack. And, and then were, they were chased down and arrested because they'd stolen from this ruler in Egypt. So Joseph's having a little fun, I think, playing with them. They're gathered before Joseph, and then we pick it up at chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard about it, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Joseph learned a lot over those years in Egypt. One of the things that changed was his perspective on life. His brothers didn't really get it, but Joseph understood some things about God. And one of the things he understood after his long ordeal is God is in control of everything. He tells his brothers three times in that short passage, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. Oh, they surely had a role in his being there. But he knew God had the final say. And God not only is in control, but Joseph understood he's in control with a purpose. And the express purpose that Joseph points out is to keep covenant with Abraham to be a great nation. His family would be a great nation. While Joseph's seeming demise in Egypt eventually actually led to God preserving his people Israel. So once again, in a kind of a sideways way, we see God's faithfulness to his covenant, taking care of his people. And God is in control with a purpose that is for the good of his people. 
Joseph understood what Paul would later say, and we've read this evening already. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Joseph grasped what one commentator, Derek Kidner, calls biblical realism. Biblical realism, uh, which he defines as the ability to see two aspects of every event, human mishandling and the perfect will of God. Now, most of us have not undergone the type of life Joseph had, but we all face struggles which sometimes seem to have no answer or no purpose. The fact that, Joseph, that Jesus is alive helps us to know and believe that God is in control of everything with a purpose and promise of bringing something good for us and that there are two sides to everything, the human side and God's side, because the best example of God doing this is the cross of Jesus Christ. What seemed like the worst tragedy in human history, God came to earth and men killed him. God turned into the most important and happiest event in history. Jesus lives and reigns and prepares a place for us. Why else would we call it Good Friday? Why else can we celebrate Easter Sunday? But not only is it important to understand God's providence, it's also important to live like God is in control. And Joseph was able to do that too. Turn ahead with me to chapter 50. The very end of the book of Genesis, we'll look at verses 19 through 21. Chapter 50, verses 19 through 21. Several things have happened. The people, the, the Israelites now get settled in the in a, a land that God, that, that Pharaoh gave him, but God had ob obviously planned it all out. A land where they could raise their, their small cattle like they, they always used to do. And uh, Jacob was in his glory, and then he passed to glory. And once Jacob passed to glory, the brothers were concerned that Joseph would try to get revenge. But look at what Joseph says in verse 19. Chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So what's Joseph's response to his brothers? Is it revenge? Those brothers were very self-conscious, scared that Joseph would get even with them after their father's death. In fact, they even lied and told Joseph that Jacob had left specific instructions for him not to get even with them. They were looking at life from the perspective of their evil for what they had done. But Joseph left the judging to God. Instead, Joseph knew God was in control and had used what they did for something good. As was written later in Proverbs 19, verse 21, Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Joseph saw life from God's perspective. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so instead of getting evil, even with them, Joseph repaid evil with good. He forgave them, relieve their fears, promise to provide for them and their families. 
When Frederick Buechner writes about this account in his book, Peculiar Treasures, he says, almost as much as it's the story of how Israel was saved from famine and extinction, it's the story of how Joseph was saved as a human being. It'd be interesting to know which of the two achievements cost God the greater effort and which one he was prouder of. Well, even as Joseph learned to live with a proper perspective in life and found power for living, power to live that way, a true understanding of God's providence should also move us to live that way as well. And so question answer 28 of the Catechism calls us as a response to God's providence to three things. First, to be patient in adversity. To be patient in adversity. When things go wrong, when no one seems to care, remember that God cares and is working out your life for good. And secondly, be thankful in prosperity. When things go well, be careful not to take credit. But remember that God is also in control of the good times and thank Him. And finally, be confident in the future. No matter what things are like, we can have hope for the future because of God's promise to work things out for our good. And because Jesus promises eternal life with Him, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. So you see, providence is more than just a, a theological term. It is for Christians the key to a proper perspective of life. God is in control and Jesus reigns. And it's a power to live life knowing that God will work out everything for the good of those who love him, ultimately by living with him forever. So as we live out the adventure called the Christian life, may we always remember that we walk hand in hand with the God who provides. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your provision in our lives. We thank you that you are God who provides, that everything that happens in life is ultimately under your sovereign will, even though sometimes we can't understand it, we can't figure it out. Help us to look for you and to be patient during those times when we face adversity. But help us also not to forget that you have been with us at different times and help us to be thankful, remembering how you are there. And then may your past work in our lives and the past work in the lives of family and friends and even biblical stories like Joseph's, may the past help us to have a confidence in the future that you're a God that still works that way and still works on our behalf. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, join together in affirming that me the message that God provides by singing together, God will take care of you. This is from the celebration hymnal, number 692. And we'll sing the four stanzas and stand as we sing. Number 692 in the celebration, and the words and music will be on the screen as well. God will take care of you.